Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. All right, so we are in Zechariah chapter 11. And uh, chapters 9 through 11 is basically one prophecy. It's one word of the Lord. In the beginning, it's introduced as the burden of the Lord. Uh, but it's all 9 through 11. And, and then the next, ha- next portion of Zechariah, the last portion, is another uh, singular message. Um, but like I mentioned, um, in chapter 9, it's, this is introduced as the burden of the Lord. And, uh, you know, as we've gone through chapter 9 and through chapter 10 last couple weeks, it hasn't seemed like much of a burden because it's been really good news. I mean, it's been good news about the fact that God's going to judge Israel's enemies. That's not a bummer. That's good news. It would be good news for God's people to hear that. God is going to send the Messiah. That's introduced. That's announced through that those chapters, too. I mean, that's good news, too. That's encouraging. That's not really a burden. In fact, it's not a burden. It's a blessing. Um, and then that God's going to save and restore his people. These are all things that would just be like, if I was a Jewish person and having just come out of captivity, be like, Oh, praise God, you know, praise Yahweh. They, I don't know if they say God, but praise Yahweh, however they say it. You know, he's, he, you know God's coming through. He's going to bless us and everything. Um, so it doesn't, you know, it's not much of a burden. But when we get to chapter 11, it's definitely a burden. It's a bummer when you get to chapter 11, um, because in chapter 11, God is prophesying, Zechariah is prophesying the word of the Lord to his people that God is going, or that their people are, they're going to reject their Messiah and his first coming to them. They're going to reject him. And, uh, and so that's definitely a burden. I, I can imagine just the burden of Zechariah just having to share this with his people about how the Messiah would be rejected. Now, chapter 11 can really be split up into three parts. Um, verses 1 through 3 talks about the land of Israel being made desolate, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. And then verses 4 through 14 is another section, and it's basically talking about the people of Israel, that they're going to reject the good shepherd. They're going to reject their shepherd. And then finally, the last part, uh, verses 15 through 17, as a result of rejecting the good shepherd, they are instead going to be given a foolish shepherd. And so we'll take a look at those three uh, divisions, those three parts this morning. So beginning with the first part, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar is fallen, because the mighty trees are ruined. Wail, O oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has come down. There is the sound of wailing shepherds, for their glory is in ruins. There is the sound of roaring lions, for the pride of Jordan is in ruins. You know, if this wasn't, uh, if this prophecy wasn't given uh, Zechariah, if it wasn't given to Zechariah, if, you know, if, if this, the Babylonian captivity hadn't already happened, then you would think that he's prophesying the Babylonian, you know, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, conquest and destruction of Jerusalem, you know, coming down through the north. Uh, but this prophecy takes place after the Babylonian captivity. And so what is this prophesying? Well, it's prophesying the Roman invasion of Israel and the destruction of Jerusalem. That's what's being prophesied here. And he starts it out with, open your doors, O Lebanon. Lebanon was the nation just to the north of Israel, and it would be the gateway. It would be the door, basically, or the path that the Roman invaders would take 
really like so many other invaders had taken before them. Um, if you've ever, if you know anything about geography, that whole area is known as the Great Rift Valley. It's about 3,700 miles long, and it begins in the Beka Valley in Lebanon, and it extends through Israel all the way down into northeast Africa. That has been, a, it's just a natural path that invaders and conquerors have taken down through the millennia. That's the same path they've taken in, con- in their conquest through there. Um, and so, again, the Romans are going to do the same thing, coming down through there, through Lebanon into Israel. Now, according to uh, Josephus, he's a Jewish historian that lived during the time of the, uh, of the destruction of Jerusalem, He describes in his book, The War of the Jews, that there have been many small skirmishes that have been going on, you know, after Jesus, uh, you know, after he died and rose again after that time. Those continuing years there, there was just a lot of unrest, a lot of political unrest, a lot of skirmishes, a lot of turmoil. Um, And so, you know, Rome was always concerned because there was always something going on in that area. Well, at last, there were some revolutionaries that seized the city of Jerusalem, and they massacred the entire Roman garrison that was there in Jerusalem that was stationed there. That was like the last straw on the, you know, that broke the camel's back, basically. At that point, the emperor Nero, in 66 AD, he sent his general Vespasian to put down that Jewish rebellion. And so this Vespasian with the Roman armies, they came marching through Lebanon. They, he made his way down through Lebanon and into the Galilee region. Either the cities would surrender, or they'd fight, whatever, but he was just plowing through and making his way down to Jerusalem. Well, it was shortly after that, in fact, two years later, in 68 AD, that the emperor Nero Nero committed suicide. And that year was known as the year of the four emperors, because there was like civil war going on in Rome at that time. Uh, The first guy that tried to take the throne as as emperor, his name was Galba, and he died. And then Otho, a guy named Otho, he he became, uh, right after that, he became emperor. Then he died. Um, and then Vitellus uh, became the emperor. He was appointed the emperor. But uh, there was, again, there was, there was a civil war going on, basically. And, and Vespasian's forces that were with him, they, at that time, when they heard about Vitellus becoming made the emperor, they declared that Vespasian was the emperor instead. So there's this, you know, there's, this, there's this thing going on. Well, in 69 AD, Vitellus was defeated in battle. And the Roman Senate at that point, they declared that Vespasian was the emperor. So when Vespasian was made the emperor, he went back to Rome to do what emperors do, you know, whatever they do. And, and uh, so he left his second in command, which happened to be his son named Titus, to take over the war against the Jewish rebellion. And so he says here, Open your doors, O Lebanon, that fire may devour your cedars. Well, O Cyprus, for the cedar is fallen because the mighty trees are ruined. Lebanon at that time was known for its lush forests of cedar and cypress trees. I don't think there's any forests there anymore. I don't know if there is, but I don't think there is. Um, you'll recall back in David, King David and King Solomon's day, there was a king of Tyre up there. His name was Hiram, and he was actually, he was actually favorable towards, uh, he was a friend of King David's. And at that point, uh, he sent down, shipped down cedar and cypress trees down to uh, Israel to use in the, re- in the construction of the temple. Well, those forests forests would be destroyed by the Romans. 
It says, Wail, o, aches, o oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has come down. Now, Bashan was in the northern part of Israel. It belonged to the tribe of Manasseh. And so that just describe, describing this path of destruction, starting in Lebanon and just working its way down into Israel. It says, There is the sound of wailing shepherds, for their glory is in ruins. There is the sound of roaring lions, for the pride of the Jordan is in ruins. And when destruction came, the shepherds, which were the religious leaders, they would wail. Why? Well, because their glory. In other words, their power, their position, their prestige. Even the temple itself would lie in ruins. The lions, that's referring to the civil rulers, they would roar. Why? Because their pride of the Jordan, basically the land of Israel that they ruled over, would lie in ruins. And then starting in verse 4, the Lord instructs Zechariah literally to do something that is, is representative of what he's going to do. In other words, he's telling Zechariah, I want you to do this thing, and it's a picture, it's a graphic illustration of what I'm going to be doing. And lots of the prophets had to do that. Remember, Ezekiel had to lay on his side, I don't know what, for six months or nine months, lay on his side. And it was a, it was a picture of what God was doing to Israel. Um, the different thing, people had to do different things. Hosea, he was told to marry a prostitute named Gomer. It, it was a graphic illustration of God was going to do. Well, here, Zechariah is giving a graphic, being told of something to do. Verse 4 Zechariah 11, by the way, verse 4, says, Thus says the Lord my God, Feed the flock for slaughter, whose owners slaughter them and feel no guilt. Those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, for I am rich, and their shepherds do not pity them. For I will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord, but indeed I will give everyone into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king. They shall attack the land, and I will not deliver them from their hand. So here, Zechariah is told to feed a flock of sheep marked for slaughter, basically. And uh, it's, it's, again, it's a graphic illustration of what God was going to do. Well, the flock of sheep was symbolic of the inhabitants of Israel. Their owners, or their rulers, they would selfishly feed themselves at the expense of the sheep that they ruled over. Their shepherds, in other words, their spiritual leaders, they would stand by and not do anything. In fact, they would actually do the same thing. And during the Roman occupation of Israel, the Jewish leaders, they collaborated with Rome. Why? Because they wanted to maintain their power and their position as much as Rome would let them have it. They wanted to maintain that lifestyle that they were used to. And so they collaborated with the enemy, basically, um, in order to maintain that power. And the high priests, the, the, the priests, that whole, the whole priesthood there at that time, they really participated in it. In fact, we know from history that Annas the high priest and his son-in-law Caiaphas, they were not only in collusion with the leaders who were in collusion with, with Rome, but they made themselves filthy rich at the expense of the worshipers. They were basically extorting the worshipers that would come to the temple from all over to worship the Lord. They were getting rich off of them. And so uh, Ezekiel had a prophecy. Ezekiel 34, verse 1, it describes these shepherds. This is how God feels about these people. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? 
You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost, but with force and cruelty you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and no one was seeking or searching for them. Can you sense God's passion for his people and his anger at these, these shepherds that were just abusing and not even taking care of his flock? What a contrast these shepherds were compared to the good shepherd, the Bible says, who lays down his life for the sheep. What a difference. In Matthew 11, verses 3 through 5, John the Baptist, he's, he's put in prison Later on, he'll have he'll actually be beheaded. But in prison, there he's starting to you know, I mean he's in he's in jail basically, and 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 he's starting to have his want his doubts about Jesus. You know, is he the Messiah or whatever? So he sends his disciples. He goes, go talk to Jesus and say, hey, are you the one, or should be we should be we be waiting for someone else? And Jesus responds, he says, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. In other words, Jesus is saying, look at the fruit of my ministry. Look at the fruit of it. Am I not doing the work of the promised good shepherd? You could just judge it by the fruit. What's the fruit of our ministries? And I'm not just talking about our church, but ourselves as as individual believers. Is there fruit in our lives? Do we generally care about others around us as Jesus did when he saw the multitudes and had compassion on them as sheep without a shepherd? You know, it's really easy to get, you know, you start reading about all these things that are happening, all these bad laws that are being passed, and people are doing this, and people are lying here, and all this stuff's going on, and it's very easy to become resentful and angry, and, you know, those dirty, rotten, you know, whatever, and, and, it, and it's so easy to have that attitude towards others. That's not Christ's attitude. He has compassion on them. They're sheep without a shepherd. These people are lost, and they need a Savior. Do we have that same compassion that he has? You know, one of the things, and I, I, like I said earlier, you know, with the, with the knowledge that we're, we're moving into this new facility, um, what a blessing to have more space for our children. I mean, that was the main reason for getting into this building was our kids. I mean, they were just cramped, and we're getting more kids, and at some point, We'll stop getting more kids because where do you put them? You know, people feel like, well, I can't bring my kids here. There's no room for them. So what a blessing to be able to get into a place that has lots of room for the kids. I mean, that, is, that, is, that in itself is a blessing, more space. But not only that, the Lord's giving us better visibility. We're going to be right on that 11th Avenue. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a relatively busy street, a lot more, you know, visibility for the community. Um, it's in a larger neighborhood than this one right here. Um, it's, it's amazing. I've been, you know, as I've been reflecting and thanking the Lord and praying, you know, I, I just these things keep popping into my head. And it's like I said, I, I need to start writing them down. So I did in my notes here, actually. You know, my vision for this new facility, it's not really different from this facility, except we don't have the space here to do what I was hoping we would be doing. But in this new facility, my hope is that that facility is going to be open more than just Sundays and Wednesday evenings. 
that it's going to just be a, an open place for the community, that they can come in, a place for hope and healing, where we actually minister to people in practical ways that lead them to the Good Shepherd. That, that's the whole purpose, to lead them to the Good Shepherd. You know, this year we obviously won't be able to do it because we won't be moving in until the end of September, but next summer, man, vacation Bible school. A lot of kids in that neighborhood. We'll reach those kids, hopefully. I even could see us doing like after school or, or uh, you know, opportunities where the doors are open for kids to come, maybe for tutoring or whatever, or a safe place for them to play or something like that. I, I could see that being used in that facility. Um, or in the wintertime, you know, sometimes there's, there's no place for the teens to go. We give them a place where they can hang out and, and fellowship and be with friends and stuff. And so uh, things like that, I just, I think it'd be awesome. I could see during the daytime ministering to students stay-at-home moms. There's a real ministry there, I think, in our community. Um, offering classes to the community. I, I hadn't talked to Teresa about this, but I thought, man, it'd be awesome for her to do a class, or some of the other women here, to do a class on menu planning for women. that just They just don't know how to do those things. Those, you know, back when my wife and some, maybe some of you were in school, you went to home ec, right? And you learned all these practical life skills. They don't teach that anymore. What a blessing to be able to teach Young mothers and, and people, just some, just some very basic things. I could see us doing that as a part of a ministry to reach people that are hurting. And uh, anyways, lots of other things. I was thinking of doing some uh, love and respect marriage seminars, just open it up to the community and, and, and just spread the word and stuff. And anyways, lots of things. But I'm open to all kinds of suggestions. So if you go, hey, I, could really, I think we could do this, I'll go, that's awesome. You're appointed. You're in charge. <laughs> I shouldn't have told you that. Now you won't say anything. <laughs> Going back to Zechariah, I know I got a little off there. Sorry about that. Going back to Zechariah, the Lord tells Zechariah here, feed the flock for slaughter, whose owners slaughter them and feel no guilt, who sell them and say, blessed be the Lord, for I am rich, and their shepherds do not pity them. And then verse 6, it says, for I will no longer pity the inhabitants of the land, says the Lord, but indeed I will give everyone into his neighbor's hand and into the hand of his king. They shall attack the land and I will not deliver them from their hand. What happened? What happened? Why would the Lord no longer pity his people Israel? And the answer is because they're going to reject the coming Messiah. He says, I will give everyone into his neighbor's hand. Josephus records how this was horribly fulfilled during the siege of Jerusalem. The starvation got so bad in Jerusalem when the Romans surrounded it that people started turning against each other and resorting to cannibalism to survive. It was that bad. Later on in Masada, which was years later, but uh, the Romans, you know, the, the last surviving Jews in there, they, 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 hold up in, they held up in, in Masada, that fortress there, down by the Dead Sea. And uh, the Romans, again, they put a, they put a siege around it, and uh, they, they just basically were, you know, trying to get into it. And when they finally did get into it, it was, the, it was a scene that was just, it just shocked the Roman soldiers. Because what happened was, the Jews that were left there, they killed each other with swords, the last person, the last Jew that was survived then killed himself, basically, because they didn't want to be taken by the Romans. And so they just committed a mass suicide, basically. It's such a horrible thing. And this is what would happen. Everyone would be giving into his neighbor's hands. Not only that, but they'd also be giving into the hand of their king. Well, wait a minute. Who's their king? 
Interesting question. Glad you asked that. (laughs) In John chapter 19, in verses 14 through 16, there's an account of this. This is when Jesus Christ is, is before Pilate and he's going to be crucified. It says, Now it was the preparation day of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered them to be crucified, delivered him to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. Pilate says, Here's your king. They go, We don't want that king. Caesar's our king. This prophecy is speaking exactly about it. The king they chose, Caesar, would attack them. They would be given into his hand and the Lord wouldn't deliver them from them because they rejected their king and they, they, they chose Caesar as their king. That's a question that each one of us needs to ask ourselves this morning. Is Jesus your king this morning? You might say, well, yeah, I'm a born-again believer. Well, I know for many... He's your Savior. But that's not what I asked. Is he your king this morning? See, a king, you pledge allegiance, complete allegiance to a king. Do you do that for Jesus? Or do you only, you know, are you, have you basically just, you know, you're, you're glad that he saved you from a life of, you're from, you know, eternal damnation from hell, but that's as far as it goes. You see, anyone or anything that you and I serve as king in our life, other than the king of kings and lord of lords, eventually it's going to turn on you. Eventually it will. If power is your king, if that's where all your energy and that focuses is on becoming powerful, eventually you're going to lose to someone more powerful than you. It happens all the time. If wealth or possessions are your king, and that's all you worship, that's all you focus, that's what you serve, eventually your possessions will possess you, and they won't deliver you from the coming day of darkness that's coming upon the earth. Basically, anything that you worship as king in place of the king of kings, it'll eventually turn against you, and it won't deliver you in the day of trouble. And so Zechariah obediently does what the Lord commanded him there. Look at verse 7. So I fed the flock for slaughter, in particular the poor of the flock. I took for myself two staffs, the one I called beauty and the other I called bonds, and I fed the flock. I dismissed the three shepherds in one month. My soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. Now, ancient shepherds commonly had two staffs or two rods, basically. One was a weapon to drive off wild beasts, and the other was to help guide the sheep through difficult paths, like mountain paths or whatever. In this case, Zechariah has two staffs, and he names one beauty and the other bonds. What does he mean? Well, beauty, the word means pleasantness, delightfulness, favor. What it's basically speaking of is the shepherd's grace towards the flock he's leading. The shepherd's favor towards them. Our good shepherd, he is so gracious towards each one of us. He favors us. He loves you this morning. And and we've been given so much grace from our good shepherd. Bonds, this is the next, you name the other staff, bonds. And it basically means a rope or a cord, that which binds together or unites. And what that's speaking of is the unity of the flock under one shepherd. And you think about it, when, when everybody 
here or in the larger evangelical community says that Jesus is our king, he's our shepherd, what a beautiful unity there is. What a, what a blessed unity and fellowship we have with believers. You know, we, at the end of Wednesday evening service, there was a gentleman that walked in, and I had met him once before, so I, I right away I recognized him, but he's a pastor of a local church here in town. And he said, he apparently heard that we were purchasing the community clothesline. Uh, and uh, so he came over here, and he was asking me all these questions about it and stuff. And, and he said, well, when you do the dedication, invite our church. We want to we join you and stuff. And, uh, you know, I know that they have some different beliefs than we do. I, I just know that from about, about them. Uh, but we worship the same shepherd. And it was so cool to have that fellowship with him. There was another pastor a while ago that um, that I know from the community. I don't know him real well, but I know of him. And and uh, anyways, again, slightly different beliefs. But you know what? He he loves Jesus. Jesus is a shepherd, and I, that was one of the churches that we were trying to sell to. You know, without a relative. So they came over. He's looking at it and stuff. At the end of that time, man, he and I just spent some time praying for each other. That's a beautiful fellowship that we have when Jesus is our Savior. When Jesus is our shepherd and our King. So he says here, I dismissed the three shepherds in one month. My soul loathed them, and their soul also abhorred me. Now, who are these three shepherds? Well, no one knows for sure who these three shepherds are, but most commentators, they're unified in this, that it's referring to the three offices of priest, prophet, and king that ruled over God's people. In one month, when Jerusalem was finally destroyed, all those offices would be abolished, and they've never been restored even to this day because Jesus is the fulfillment of priest, prophet, and king. Verse 9, Then I said, I will not feed you. Let what is dying die, and what is perishing perish. Let those that are left eat each other's flesh. And because God's people had rejected Jesus from being their Messiah, he lifted his hand of protection from them, and he allowed them to perish. And this, they, he literally allowed them to, uh, left them to cannibalize each other, you know, right at the last days before Jerusalem was destroyed. How did he do it? He just lifted his hand of protection off of them. Verse 10, And I took my staff beauty and cut it in two, that I might break the covenant which I had made with all the peoples. So it was broken on that day. Thus the poor of the flock who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Zechariah there, in breaking the staff called beauty, he symbolically is breaking God's covenant of grace and favor with his people. And again, how does he do it? By basically lifting his hand of protection off. You look at the history of the United States, and we've had God's hand of protection on our nation in so many ways. Starting from the Revolutionary War, you hear about some of those battles in the Revolutionary War. God definitely had his hand of protection on our nation as it was, as it was forming. And God has protected our nation so much over the years. But I believe a time is coming when God's going to take his hand and he's going to lift it off. And when that happens, all hell breaks loose. All hell breaks loose. And why would he do that? Because we're continuing to rebel and reject him. Titus, the guy that took over for Aspasian, when they surrounded Jerusalem and they were trying to, you know, they were putting down the rebellion, he actually wanted to, he, he wanted to leave the temple intact. He didn't want to destroy the temple. He warned his soldiers, don't, don't destroy the temple. You know, he, he wanted to keep it intact. But once God lifted his hand of protection, even Titus couldn't protect 
temple. Eventually, one of his soldiers threw a flaming torch into the one of the windows, and all the wood caught on fire inside the temple. And the temple literally burned to the ground, and all the people that were held up inside there died. And the gold of the temple basically just, it all just melted into the cracks of the blocks of the, of the temple, the foundation. And just as Jesus said, they left not one stone standing upon the other because they literally disassembled it block by block in order to extract all that gold that had melted in there. It says here that the poor, it mentions the poor of the flock who are watching that they knew it was the hand of the Lord. And, and here in verse 11 and back in verse 7, who are the poor of the flock? Basically, it represents those who humbly receive the words of the shepherd and believe him. In other words, his, Jesus' disciples and his followers. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You think about it. When you're, when you've, when you're wealthy, are any of you wealthy? <laughs> Raise your hands. No, I'm just kidding. If any of you are wealthy, you know, probably I'm looking around here. Nobody's wealthy. Okay, well, for the wealthy people, you know, they don't need anything, right? Because they either have it or they have the means of getting it. They're basically not dependent on anybody else but themselves because they're wealthy. The poor, on the, other per, on the other hand, they can't provide for themselves. They have to have assistance. They, they have to rely on help external for them because they can't get them on their own. And to be poor in spirit is to recognize just how utterly helpless you are and how much you need the Lord in every aspect of your of your life. That one song that we sing, worship song, I need thee every hour. Man, that's becoming more and more of a reality for me. Man, I need you, Lord, every hour. I need you. That's being poor in spirit. And so when all these events transpired with the destruction of Jerusalem, the poor, in other words, his followers, they weren't spared from it. They, they went right through it as well as everybody else. But they knew that it was the fulfillment of what Jesus had told them. You know, as, as these events unfolded, they remembered Christ's words. You and I, we see a lot of dark things happening in our culture and in our nation and in the world in general. There's some ominous days coming ahead. You can really see it. Most people can sense that. But you and I, we view it in light of the scriptures, right? We know things are going to get very dark before the Lord returns. Teresa and I were having a discussion about that the other day. You know, it's like, how bad is it going to get before the rapture of the church? You know, what's going to happen? Well, we don't really know for sure, but I, I've got a feeling it can get a lot more worse even before it gets better, you know, before Christ returns for his church. I don't believe that the church will go through the tribulation, but that's not to say that it's going to become dark and difficult up until that point. It could become very difficult. Verse 12, Then I said to them, If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for my wages 30 pieces of silver, and the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord for the potter. What an amazing prophecy that was literally fulfilled roughly around 500 years later when Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And after he did that, he, he later felt remorse and he tried to undo his betrayal, basically. I mean, the, it already happened, but you know, he tried to make himself feel better by returning the, the 30 pieces of silver. And the chief priests and the scribes, they showed no empathy for Judas and so at that point, and you guys know the story, he just threw the money into the temple and he went out and he hung himself. 
and the chief priests and the scribes, they took the money, but they're like, we can't put it in the treasury. It's blood money. Well, they had just paid for it. was blood money. They made it blood money, right? They paid to betray Jesus. They said, well, what do we do with it? And it says that they purchased the potter's field to bury him in it. Miraculously, amazingly fulfilling this prophecy. It says, and the Lord said to me, throw to the potter that princely price they set on me. I don't know if you sense that, but it's sarcasm there. That wasn't a princely price for Jesus. That was basically 30 pieces of silver was the price of a servant that was gored by an ox. So if you, wanted, you, know, if you had an ox and, and it went into a neighbor's field and it, and it gored their servant, their slave, that's how much you owed them for recompense. Pay them back. Was all, well, I'm sorry, your slave got killed. Here's 30 pieces of silver. Basically, Jesus was valued at the price of a slave. That leads us to another question for each one of us this morning. What value do you place on Jesus? What value do I place on Jesus? You know, what you value highest in your life, it's reflected in what you focus the most on. Whatever you value the most in your life, that's what you focus your time and your energy on. There was a time in my own life, personally speaking, when I valued the Lord for saving me from hell. I mean, I was glad I had my fire insurance, you know. I had my policy, my get-out-of-hell free card, you know. Hey, I'm a born-again believer. But that's as far as it went. I didn't value Christ more than that. Reflect on what occupies your time, your talent, your treasure lately. What occupies your waking thoughts, your goals? Just think about that for a few moments. That'll give you a pretty good indication of what value you set on Jesus. Because if something's higher, then Jesus is valued less. And so after Zechariah asked for his wages as a shepherd, prophetically symbolizing what Israel will do to their Messiah, look at verse 14. Then I cut in two my other staff bonds, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. And because... Israel rejected the good shepherd. Their fellowship, their unity underneath him as their head was broken. And the destruction of Israel by Rome would be so complete that as a nation, they would be scattered abroad and dispersed through the nations all over the world. When people reject Jesus from being the good shepherd in their life, man, there can be no true unity and fellowship. That's why Paul warns believers, hey, don't marry unbelievers because you don't have that unity. You don't have that fellowship with an unbeliever because your values, your whole worldview is different. And that's why there's a warning. Don't get into a marriage like that. As a pastor, you know, people come to me and ask me to marry them. And that's one of the first criteria is, well, if it's a believer, they, I mean, I've, I've married unbelievers before and it's fine. You guys can get married. I mean, but if a believer comes to me, and I know they're a believer, and they say, I want to marry this person, I, I have to ask, well, I have to find out, well, is that person a born-again believer or not? Because if they're not, I can't in a good conscience marry you. Because you're just asking for trouble. It's, you're just, you're, it's oil and water. You're, you're never going to be unified in the deepest sense and in the truest sense. Well, now we get to the third division in this chapter. Verses 15 on, it says, And the Lord said to me, Next, take for yourself the implements of a foolish shepherd. For indeed, I will raise up a shepherd in the land who will not care for those who are cut off, nor seek the young, nor heal those that are broken, nor feed those that that still stand. But he will eat the flesh of the fat and tear their hooves in pieces. 
Back in verses 5 through 14, there symbolically, Zechariah symbolically or graphically portraying the good shepherd Jesus Christ and that the Jews rejected him from being their king over them. And now in verse 15 through the end of the chapter, Zechariah is to symbolically portray a foolish shepherd. It's a foolish shepherd that won't care for those that are cut off. You contrast that to the good shepherd he says, I was sent to save, the, you know, I was seeking to save the lost. The foolish shepherd won't care for those that are cut off. A foolish shepherd's not going to seek the young or heal those that are broken. Contrast that again with the good shepherd that said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of heaven. You wonder why I'm so excited about getting into a building with, that has more room for children's ministry? Because I want to reach children for Christ. I really do. I, my heart, they're the next generation, folks. We're getting older and older. I, I don't know if that's news to you, but we're getting older. That's the next generation of believers. Yeah. <laughs> they're the ones that are going to carry the torch for us, for Christianity. And so it's so important to reach them for Christ. The good shepherd came to heal the brokenhearted. The foolish shepherd could care less about them. A foolish shepherd will not feed those that stand still. And the way I look at that, I contrast that with the good shepherd that lovingly and patiently feeds his flock. Good, the, the, the foolish shepherd, he doesn't have time for anybody that's not, you know, just if you're not with it with him and stuff. But the, but the good shepherd, man, he's so gracious. You know, he's so patient with us because we're not always on the same page with the Lord. We're, sometimes we're lagging behind. We're not getting it, you know, and stuff. God is so patient with each one of us. A foolish shepherd feeds off and destroys the flock. Again, contrast that with the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. In fact, sheep that love to wander from him. He still lays down his life for them. Who is this foolish shepherd? Well, in one way you could say he might be Barabbas, right? Because he was exchanged for Jesus. But I think what this is actually speaking about is the Antichrist. We haven't seen the fulfillment of that yet. And notice, because God's people rejected their king, God would raise up this self-seeking foolish shepherd. It's because they've, they've rejected him. God says, okay, well, I'm going to give you what you want. Here's what you want. I think in a lot of ways, the leaders that you and I have today, even in our nation, are what we've gotten them because that's what we've wanted. We don't want, you know, the majority of people, they don't want godly men you know, fundamental Christians. They, you know, you can't force your Christianity on people. They, we don't want that. And so, okay, we'll give you what you want. And so now we have this, what we have today. It's a result of having rejected the Lord's authority over our own lives and our nation. And we're getting what we deserve. I hate to say that, but it's true. Verse 17, Woe to the worthless, worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. A sword shall be against his arm and against his right eye. His arm shall completely wither, and his right eye shall be totally blinded. So this foolish and worthless shepherd, he's eventually going to be subject to God's wrath and destruction. You know, it talks about his, his, uh, a sword against his arm and, and against his right eye. His arm's going to completely wither, and his right eye shall be totally blinded. That could be referring to the mortal wound that the Antichrist is going to receive. Someone's going to try to assassinate him, apparently. It's in uh, Revelation 13. He, he's going to be, um, you know, he'll get somebody's, it's going to appear by all the purposes that he was killed, he was assassinated, and he's going to miraculously be healed. And they're going to look at him and go, whoa, 
He must be a God. We're going to worship him because look at that. He came back. So it could be referring to that. But in the end, we know that he's going to be subject to God's wrath and destruction. You know, in chapter 11, if chapter 11 was the end of the book of Zechariah, wouldn't that be a bummer? <laughs> it's like, hey, I'm, looking around the, I'm looking around the room and there's nobody smiling this morning. It's like, oh, man, that's pretty depressing. But you know what? The last chapters of Zechariah's prophecy of the second coming, this was dealing with the first coming of the Messiah, the second coming of Messiah to Israel, and their subsequent acceptance of him and deliverance of him, it's going to be glorious. I'm excited about getting to the rest of this, of this book of Zechariah. But I want to finish with this. He says, Woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. I was thinking about that, dwelling on that. You know, yesterday I was reading through the book of Ruth, and uh, one thing that struck me, and you guys know the story of Ruth, you know, um, Naomi, her mother-in-law, uh, you know, they went out actually went out with Elimelech, I think it was his name, went out in, uh, away from Bethlehem, and, and uh, he died. And she, they had a couple sons, and they got married to Mo- Moabite women, and they, the sons died. And so basically it was Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws. And uh, I should have some of you women come, you probably tell the story, because I know that's one of the favorite Bible study, right? Well, um, they come back into the land, and, and Naomi basically tells Orpah, I think that's her name. Hey, well, actually tells both of them, go back to your land, marry into the Moabites and stuff. You know, don't, don't hang out with me because I have nothing. And, uh, and Orpah does it, not, not to knock her or anything. She does it. But uh, Ruth says, man, she just keeps following Naomi. And it says, Ruth, Ruth said, entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go, I will go. And whenever you, wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. When you die, I will die, and there I will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death departs you from me. And what, what struck me when I was reading that and then reading about woe to the worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. You know, when we started the Calvary Chapel here in Rochester, there were a lot of other guys in the Midwest that started Calvary Chapels around the same time that I did. And since then, there have been some that, you know, they get sent out, and they're all excited. They go into this new town in Minnesota or Iowa or Wisconsin. They're all excited, and they're, they're going to start a work for the Lord, and, and uh, something happens. And there's many different reasons, but out of all those that I've known, there's only a handful that are remaining. It's It's... It's tough, for one thing, starting a a Calvary Chapel in the Midwest. But for whatever reason, people leave. And that's one thing that I always am mindful of is the need to be faithful. The need to be thick and thin. I've known some pastors that have, you know, it's like, okay, I lost my job. uh, I'm not in the ministry anymore. It's like, well, wait a minute. Were you called into the ministry? Why are you leaving? Hang in there. God's got something, but, you know, and I, I, can't, I can't fault them, but for whatever reason, they leave. But for me, it's a reminder to be faithful. Woe to the, woe to the uh, worthless shepherd who leaves the flock. You know, and of course, this is a, a mind, this is a message for me probably as a pastor, but faithfulness is such a rare commodity nowadays anyways, right? It's... It's, it's a rare commodity in marriages. People leave marriages when things get too hard. People leave the Lord when things get too hard. People, they bounce from church to church. As soon as they get uncomfortable, boom, I'll go to another church. I'm not happy here. I'm out to another church, you know. Faithfulness is a rare 
commodity. And Jesus is speaking. He says, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? And I, and I know he's speaking about faith in him, but I think he also means faithfulness in general. Because that's one thing that's starting to disappear from our, from our vocabulary, from our practice, is faithfulness. And so that last thing, you know, woe to the, woe to the worthless shepherd um, who leaves the flock. And I, I just want to encourage you... Um, it's so important to be in fellowship. It's so important to be in that unity under the good shepherd. And so I just, I pray that the Lord helps you and I to remain faithful, not only to him, because of course that's our first priority is to be faithful to him, but also to be faithful to his flock, other believers, man, to be involved in each other's lives. It's so important. And so why don't you stand up? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. And Lord, as we're just reflecting on Israel's first rejection uh, of you, as you came as their good shepherd, Lord, I I thank you that that's not the end of the story. That, Lord, according to your word, Lord, when you return the second time, Lord, that Israel will accept you as their shepherd. They will will recognize you as their Savior, as their Messiah, Lord, and, and that you will save them. Lord, I thank you that you're not done with those people. And I thank you that you're not done with us either, Lord. God, that, Lord, you are such a good shepherd. You're so patient with us. Lord, we, we tend to wander. We're prone to wander from you, Lord. We're prone to allow other things to take our allegiance, our focus, and our time. And, Lord, you still love us. And I thank you for that, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. Lord, I pray that you would help us to remain not only faithful to you, but faithful to each other, Lord God. Help us to stand out as, as those, that, a, a strange and a, and a peculiar people because we're faithful and because we love one another, Lord. And so I just thank you for that reminder this morning. Lord, I pray your blessing upon your people. And uh, again, we thank you uh, for, the, for the sale of the church and the blessings that, Lord, we are anticipating with moving to this new facility. What a blessing and what a good God you are. And we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.